0: What's up, City Life Newport News? It's good to be here. If you are a first time visitor, it's your first time here. We are one church, three locations, three campuses. Uh, I'm wearing this shirt as a diagram. David explained it. We had a way to map up there City Life in Newport News, Williamsburg, and Suffolk. So I'm here from Suffolk, and uh, I bring greetings from Suffolk, and uh, just want to say it's so good to be here. I've been back since January. I feel like a first time visitor because all this. I've just been imagining it since January, so it's so good to be here and be in the building. And and again, greetings from our Suffolk campus, where the front of Faith Lutheran right now is covered with hundreds of pumpkins, and the inside is covered with hundreds of Christmas lights. So our visitors think we have some kind of multiple holiday syndrome, but really, uh, two things. First, we have had a lot of visitors. Last week, for the first time outside of our launch and outside of Easter, we had 100 people in the building, right? And and some of you might think that seems like small potatoes, or it's a... A head count what's the big deal but every one of those heads is attached to a heart and you build the kingdom of God through people's hearts and so we're excited about each person that sets foot in Suffolk every week and I'm excited every time I think about you guys worshiping here simultaneously on a Saturday but then the second thing is those Christmas lights they're not actually about Christmas we're, we've been in the same series that you guys have been in stranger things and uh, I'll tell you like I tell them in Suffolk this isn't a endorsement top to bottom of the series and this isn't uh Twisting truth like a pretzeler doing Bible gymnastics, trying to find spiritual imagery in secular art. What am I talking about? David knows you go to Barnes and Noble. You find, you'll find the gospel according to Harry Potter. You'll find the gospel according to Lost. There's probably a gospel according to Star Wars where like Obi-Wan and Luke and Yoda are like the Trinity like, George Lucas is not C.S. Lewis. He was not trying to do that. So this isn't the gospel according to Stranger Things, and I'm not saying go home and watch it with your little kids, and we're not going to have a, a viewing party in the fellowship hall, where we'll just binge it overnight tonight. But speaking of parties, what are some of your favorite events or parties to attend? I'm talking birthdays, Super Bowl viewing, bar mitzvahs, whatever. Favorite events, favorite parties to attend? Super Bowl party, yup. Wedding receptions, yup, all the food. Anybody else? Parties and events you love? New Year's? Yup. Christmas parties? Yeah. White elephant? <laughs> Anybody else? Mike. Fourth of July. All these events we love, all these parties we enjoy. And it's funny because I was reading through Ecclesiastes the week before this, and I got to chapter 7 and verse 2. And in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2, it says, Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies, and the living should take this to heart. Now, I bet that in your list of verses you memorize, this might not be in there. This isn't the verse you go to in the morning when you're looking for a Jesus jump start or a Holy Spirit jump off. This isn't the one that you're going to turn to. I'd much rather read about Jesus at a wedding reception, David, or whoever said that, and turning water to wine. I'd rather read about his birth and the celebration of his birth than think about my death. Is anybody with me on that? I'd much rather spend time at my own birthday party or somebody else's birthday party celebrating their life than at a funeral. But let's be serious. As you get older, my age, older, you'd almost rather people forget that you just turned a year older. Let's just pretend I haven't had any birthdays since like 25 or 26 and call it a day, right? And that's because we like to avoid all signs of aging, the thought of aging towards death. Think about it. We dye our hair when it turns gray, we use anti-wrinkling creams, Botox, plastic surgeries because we like to avoid the thought of what's to come. You know, death used to be unavoidable. But we live in a different society today. Professionals handle the process of burial. No longer does the family have to do all of that. And when somebody dies, we like to use terms like pass away to gloss over the deeper reality. And our heartfelt good intention is to make those that suffered loss, make make that season pleasant for them or help them through that season. But Ecclesiastes makes its point about funerals because at funerals we're forced to stand vulnerable and naked. Before a reality that we try not to think about or look directly upon. You know, in Stranger Things, the mom is forced to face the reality that her son is gone. She's forced to eventually hold a funeral for him. And in spite of, due to, get this, Stranger Things, she begins to think maybe he's not gone. Maybe he's passed on to another dimension. Maybe he's still alive somewhere. And she looks crazy, bottom line, right? I think it's one of the episodes, it's called The Weirdo on Maple Street. And you see the same thing with the three friends grappling with this thought, is there hope for somebody we lost? And we can relate to this struggle because we can see ourselves in it. Every age struggles with the finality of death. Every age struggles with the incomprehensibility of death. Is the afterlife, is it just wishful thinking? Is hanging our hopes on life after death simply illogical and strange? And millions hung around to watch the characters of Stranger Things grapple with this. And you see, despite the town chalking up the boy as dead, the boy's friends, his older brother, his mother, the police chief, they all begin their own investigations that lead them to believe that there are uh, dark government agencies and malevolent supernatural forces that had something to do with this. And it, it all came from the Department of Energy at the center of the town. And it was funny to me as I was researching for this Uh, sermon series, that Stranger Things got so big that the Department of Energy, I'm talking energy.gov, the government website, had to release an article to convince people that they weren't up to bad stuff. In this article, they have five main points. The first is that Hawkins National Laboratory doesn't exist. The second is that the Energy Department doesn't explore parallel universes. The third was that the Energy Department doesn't mess with evil monsters. The National Lab scientists aren't evil. They're actually quite nice. And lastly, that lights aren't powered by monsters and other life forms. That's our government releasing that because this show got so big. But in the show, you see all kinds of crazy things come out of this building surrounded by tight security and a big old fence, including this girl who's only known by the name Eleven. I thought about shaving my beard just going about her for Halloween, right? I already got the haircut. Do whatever, right? It's easy. But when I was, again, studying for this series, just the thought of 11 coming through that fence it reminded me of a short story I read about once where a woman has a son and he's born blind. She doesn't want him to know that he's blind. So she forbids anybody that comes in contact with him to say anything about color, to say anything about uh, light, to say anything that would clue him to the fact that other people can see and he can't. And she successfully insulates him in this way until finally he's outside playing and a girl jumps over the fence. A young girl introduces herself, and she starts to use all these words that are forbidden in the boy's entire world. His whole perspective, it shatters in the face of this unimagined new reality. You know, in modern times, Christians should resemble the strange girl who brings a message from the other side of the fence, that there's another reality that you aren't even considering. At least we we should. We should be like that. But too often, we limit the supernatural. And God moving and we compartmentalize it, whether it's a weekend service, whether it's a men's retreat or some other experience, we can try to push the supernatural back behind the fence. But you know what? In the show, the supernatural gets outside that fence and God would say to his church, hey, let me get outside the fence. Let me get outside these boundaries and these limits that you're putting on me. Again, Christianity should bring rumors of another reality on the other side of the fence, a supernatural God who's active even in the seemingly ordinary things. And this informs us in so many ways, and that's what we've been walking through in Suffolk, and I'm sure you've been walking through here. How does the supernatural, the reality we don't see, affect the one that we do? And again, you look at the Bible, Jesus, like the girl in the short story, like 11 in Stranger Things, he comes from the other side of the proverbial fence, and he shatters our reality. You know, to some Jesus is a prophet. He's a nice moral teacher from thousands of years ago. He's like Mr. Rogers, but just in the Middle East thousands of years ago. But here's the thing. We don't devote ourselves to follow Jesus because of some good teaching. Jesus didn't just give a bunch of witty proverbs and advice on how to live better. He did and said things that ordinary people wouldn't do. He crosses the line into and beyond extraordinary into some downright strange things, not just once or twice, but throughout the gospels. You know, the Jesus we so often see portrayed is tamed and ordinary, and it couldn't be further from the truth. He was so unordinary that his own family in the book of Mark says he's out of his mind. <laughs> Bottom line, either Jesus is a liar, he's a madman, he's crazy, or he's exactly who he says he is, the son of God. And here's the thing. it wasn't Mr. Rogers. This guy was like, Billy Graham with, like, five of the Avengers' superpowers. He was multiplying food, walking on water, raising people from the dead, including himself. But that's where I want to look tonight. Well, I want to look at John chapter 11, where he raises Lazarus from the dead. So if you got your Bible, you can turn there. If you've got the version app, you can swipe there. We'll get there. But we're going to talk about Lazarus and his tomb. We already shared the story about the, the blind boy. But, you know, there was a woman who once lived named Helen Keller who— lived almost physically entombed in her body because she couldn't see, she couldn't hear. And she once said, this is a quote from Helen Keller, that for three things I thank God every day of my life. Thanks that he has vouchsafed me knowledge of his works. Deep thanks that he has set in my darkness the lamp of faith. Deep, deepest thanks that I have another life to look forward to. A life joyous with light and flowers and heavenly songs. See, Helen Keller was awakened to another reality that she couldn't sense, and with that came hope. And the point that I want to look at tonight out of the story of Lazarus is that Jesus's victory over death, it didn't remove death from the equation, but it added life eternal to the equation. Not just life eternal for our afterlife, but life eternal that affects us right now. Didn't remove death from the equation, but he added eternal life to the equation. So let's turn to John chapter 11 the story of Lazarus and Lazarus it doesn't just teach us about death it teaches us about life it teaches us about life after death. you know we can relate to this story just like with stranger things because we all grapple with death. Lazarus is the, the friend we lost the family member whose illness shouldn't have been terminal but we lost that person. Lazarus is the reminder of every graveside we stood beside and the one grave we will eventually have to visit, which is our own. you know George Bernard Shaw. He once said, and we're fleeing because they want to stone us. And then, not to spoil the story, uh, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And then at the end, after he does that, after he shows he has power over death, the religious leaders say, hey, I want him dead. Think about the irony of that. Jesus shows he's got power over death, and what's the religious leaders response, I want him dead. Good luck, right? (laughs) Good luck. So you turn to John chapter 11, verses 1 through, we're going to read through 15. I'm going to put some of that up on the screen. It says, a man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus's sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going back there again? Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. Then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But now I will go and wake him up. And the disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he will soon get better. Knuckleheads. (laughs) They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping. But Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So for now, you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. How many you guys know somebody that always likes to have the final word? Put your spouse in there next to you, don't make eye contact, right? <laughs> maybe it's like the, the kids you knew when you were growing up who's was like, I, quoting Pee Wee Herman, I know you are, but what am I? I know you are, but what am I? I know you are until you give up, right? That was my childhood, right? And then maybe you've got a coworker or somebody you know who you think the conversation's over and you're leaving the room and then you hear him mumble something. You're like, excuse me? What? I thought the conversation was over, but they want to have the last word. In this passage, death is robbed of the final word. And when you look at Jesus' first words in this entire chapter, he says, hey, Lazarus' sickness, it won't end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God. And it's so easy. Again, most of us probably know how this ends. It's so easy to read the Bible backwards and know what happens. But Jesus says, hey, it's not going to end in death, yet he dies. And it looks like Jesus let it happen. But he says, hey, he's asleep because death doesn't have the same finality to Jesus as it did to others. And again, it's so easy to read the Bible backwards, but can you imagine being Mary and Martha? Desperate for Jesus to come, trying to take care of their brother and keep him from dying. They don't have cell phone signals in Judea. like They can't just call them and say, Jesus, we need you here now and explain just how serious it is. And Jesus doesn't make it in time. They watch their brother die. They watch him struggle to breathe. They probably watch him writhe and groan. They watch him die. They're not in an ICU where somebody else is taking care of him. They had to live through that. That was their raw reality. And then we get to I want to read verses 20 through 26. Verses 20 through 26 of John 11. It says, when Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you Whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. And yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. But Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this? This period between Lazarus' death And Jesus is coming. Again, it must have felt like an eternity for Mary and Martha. God's divine timing. It's funny how it doesn't always match ours. We begin to ask those questions. God, if you're really for me and not against me, how could this happen? God, if you really love me, where were you? And you hear that in the tone of what Martha says when she says to Jesus, if you would have come when we called you, my brother would still be alive. Why didn't your timing match mine? And again, these four days are significant. There was a well known Jewish belief and superstition that's found in first century writing that the soul of a dead person would remain in the vicinity of the body, hoping to re enter it for three days. But once de- decomposition settled in, the soul would depart. So, this four day period shows that this isn't a resuscitation for Lazarus. Miracle Max wasn't going to roll up there and say he's mostly dead, you know, but he's not all the way dead. There was no chocolate covered pill that was going to bring him back to life. No, he was all the way dead. Before we dive into verses 40 through 43, this is free. In the King James Version, Jesus is like, hey, let's roll away this stone. Let's raise your brother. And Martha's like, he's been in there for a while. In the King James Version, it says he's going to stinketh. Stinketh is in your Bible if you've got the King James Version. Maybe you've had some diapers that have stinketh, David. I don't know. But it says in verse 40, Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hand and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a head cloth. And Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. This is like, Jesus' mic drop. That's when somebody who spent some time on a mic thinks they did something so awesome that they should just drop microphones, but Kanye made it famous. Obama even did it once, right? The mic drop. It's for unathletic people that will never be able to spike a football because I'm never scoring a, a touchdown in any significant football game. So that's just for unathletic people that talk for a living. But this was all that for Jesus wrapped in one. You know, his public ministry is completed at this point. Essentially, after the religious leaders put a hit out on him, he goes underground. He comes back for the Passover, but for public pleas not to perform signs and wonders. This story with Lazarus was the pinnacle of his public ministry. Saying, look, I got control, I rule and reign even over death. But we soon realized that Jesus, he didn't remove death from the equation. Jesus went on from this to die on a cross. Lazarus himself would have to die a second time. The Lazarus narrative is not to remove the grief we feel over death, suffering, and loss. Jesus doesn't rebuke Mary and Martha for their mourning. The sorrow of the moment was real. It was poignant. It was powerful. You know, in some Christian circles, the reality of the resurrection, sometimes it's preached like we shouldn't grieve over death or we shouldn't feel sorrow over death. But Mary and Martha were crying, and Jesus, he he allows it. He joins in. He doesn't say, hey, don't you know who I am? (laughs) Why are you crying? No, he allows them, gives them permission In that moment. You know, C.S. Lewis in his book, A Grief Observed, he said, it's hard to have patience with people who say that there's no death or death doesn't matter. There is death and whatever is matters. If you're on Twitter, you know about the, the concept of live tweeting. If you're not on Twitter, you have no idea what I just said, but that's when there's an event going on And everybody's tweeting about it at the same time. You're getting their reactions, their train of thought as you're reacting to the same things. The the grief observed, this book by C.S. Lewis, it's almost as if he's live journaling the months after his wife's death from cancer. It's powerful. Uh, I don't know if you've read C.S. Lewis. It probably shouldn't be the first C.S. Lewis book you read, but you should read it. It'll make you want to be a better husband. It'll make you want to be a better wife. It'll make you want to be a better friend. Just don't read it on a Friday night because it'll bum you out. But C.S. Lewis, he wrestles with doubt. He kicks violently. (laughs) There was so much doubt, pain, and angst in this writing that he wrote it under another name because he didn't even know if he wanted to be associated with it. He describes mourning as feeling drunk. He even describes it as feeling concussed. Her absence, he said, was like the sky spread over everything. He says that God felt absent, like a door slammed shut. But by the end of some 70 pages of pouring himself out on paper over months, C.S. Lewis realizes, when I lay these questions before God, I get no answer, but rather a special sort of no answer. It's not the locked door. He's more like a silent, certainly not uncompassionate gaze, as though he shook his head, not in refusal, but waving the question like, peace, child, you don't understand. See, our confidence in suffering. And our confidence in death, it's not some shallow optimism that denies the doubts or denies the questions or denies the anguish of the experience. It looks it straight in the eye. When we don't understand the circumstance, we trust in his power because he beat the grave. We trust in him. Again, Jesus, he didn't remove death from the equation, but he proclaims for us as he did with Lazarus that our lives won't end in death. Again, think about it, Lazarus, he had to die twice. C.S. Lewis, and again, in a grief observe, he says, they call Stephen the first martyr, but hadn't Lazarus the raw ordeal? You think about it, he gets to heaven, and God's like, sorry, you got to go back. You're about to step into the glory, and for my son's glory, you got to go back, and you're going to have to suffer and die a second time. Sorry. <laughs> C.S. Lewis realizes in his book that for him to pray his wife back, to be with him, ultimately would be selfish. And, you know, there's this thought, as I've had to bury all my grandparents and, and, and some friends, and whenever I'm mourning, just, I remember in John 17, 25, goes to heaven. It's an answer to that prayer. My prayer is always, God, I want them to be with me where I am. But I realize that if they know Jesus, they're covered in his blood, they're they're with him now. It's an answer to Jesus' prayer, and there's such a peace in that. That's why Paul says to the church, don't mourn like those who have no hope. And C.S. Lewis says that what St. Paul says can comfort only those who love God better than the dead and the dead better than themselves. But again, can you imagine Lazarus on his deathbed a second time without worry and fear were there, but yet there was a confidence. It was coupled with confidence because he knew his relationship with Jesus transcended death. His love for God would fuel his faith and hope. And again, Paul says, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, he says, if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. You know, the afterlife is not just some stranger thing left for fantasy and fiction. Eternal life is a reality. It's supposed to define the way we look at life, we look at our lives, and the lives of those around us. You know, Lori Ruggiero, where you at, Lori? I saw you around here somewhere. Yeah, you posted something a few months ago about the song, uh, what is it, Can I Stay or Should I Stay or Should I Go by The Clash. And it's from before I was born. And all these people are laughing about it. And they're like, yeah, and, and, and going back and forth. and I'm like, what is this about? Like this song, again, came out before I was born. How is it still this popular that people are talking about it on Facebook? And then finally I watch Stranger Things, right? And it's all throughout the show. But Paul essentially sings this line, should I stay or should I go in Philippians 1. Only he's not chased by trouble, he's chasing after God's presence. You know, an afterlife with God in heaven was such a reality for Paul that he, he yearned for it. In Philippians 1:21, he says, for to me, means living for Christ, but dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me, but for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. You know, the reason that Paul could wait for heaven forever is he knows that God whets our appetite in this life with his goodness and his purpose over our life. And that our purpose in this life, as he says so eloquently in this, is to serve others and point to that life he's given us. Jesus did, again, he didn't just add to the equation eternal life after death. He had an eternal life that we can experience now. As Fred said so eloquently again and again that, that we often think of eternal life in the length continuum. That it's just going to go on forever. But God wants us to think of eternal life in the depth continuum. That there is a, a depth continuum of fulfillment in this life that you will never experience outside of relationship with God. That's what we share. But the question I want to look at for the rest of our time is, how is this resurrection life realized in my life today? Because it's one thing to say we're saved, but it's another to understand what it means to have eternal life in the present. How do I possess, how do I proclaim this eternal life? I love the verse Psalm 90 verse 12 because it addresses both. Psalm 90 verse 12. It says, teach us to realize the brevity of life, that we may grow in wisdom. The NIV version says that we may walk in wisdom. What is this wisdom that we walk in? I want to give three realities of the afterlife that inform our actions in this life. How do we know that we're walking in light of eternal life? I'm going to do three, maybe do four. Maybe you get a bonus one because you're Newport News and I love you. We got time. But the first one is when we live in the reality of eternal life, we live mindful of coming judgment. When we live in the reality of eternal life, we live mindful of coming judgment. You know, some people would look at that quote by Helen Keller that we read, and they would look at the mother in Stranger Things believing that her son was in a better place, or maybe not in that show, (laughs) but our typical belief that, yeah, those that we love, they went to a better place. They would chalk that up as wishful thinking, that the hope of eternity is a coping mechanism against the pains of today. That religion offers hope for suckers and losers, but not the serious and sophisticated. Karl Marx once said famously that religion is the opium of the people. Is it? Or is believing that our actions will never be judged? Is that for suckers? Believing that we're free to float whatever direction we want, follow whatever impulse our flesh leads us into, and there's never eternal consequence. You know, one fundamental motivation for atheism is the fear of accountability and consequence before an almighty God. Many historians attribute the rise of atheism in the 18th and 19th centuries as a fruit of a godless world who long for reality that fit their longings. There's a Polish poet whose name I can't pronounce, but I'm going to give it a stab. I think it's Czeslaw Malosh. Most Greek and Hebrew words I can look up online. I don't, I don't know where to find that. But he was a Polish poet. He won the Nobel Prize in 1980 for literature after being intellectually bullied and politically silenced, get this, by the Nazis first and then by Stalin. What a life. But he said at one point this profound statement. He said, religion, opium for the people, to those suffering pain, humiliation, illness, and serfdom, it promised a reward in afterlife. And now we're witnessing a transformation. A true opium of the people is a belief in nothingness after death. The huge solace of thinking that for our betrayals, greed, cowardice, murders, we're not going to be judged. The Marxist creed has now been inverted. The true opium of modernity is the belief that there is no God, so that humans are free to do precisely what they please. You know, for Maloche and those who suffer persecution and oppression, there's peace in knowing that everything crooked is going to be made right. You know, our God is a God of justice. He's holy and he's righteous. And when events in our society like those of the past weeks and the past month happened, shootings and riots, I think, man, how did we get here? Where are we going? What is happening? And I always return to the prophet Amos who said in his book, let justice roll down like water, righteousness like a mighty stream. Now, this sounds like the cry of people. Sounds like it should be the cry of the Israelites. But this is God speaking through the prophet Amos. He's saying, hey, let justice roll down like water, righteousness like a mighty stream. Because God has a heart for justice. And when it's missing, his heart hurts. He grieves with us. He isn't numb or blind to it. And when injustice hurts people, he hurts with them. He's near to the oppressed. And the peace that the gospel brings is everyone will be judged. Everyone. One may fool justice in this life, but not in eternity. God sees, God knows, and God will call everyone to account. And we have confidence knowing that the injustices of this life will one day be made right. David speaks of it so many times in the Psalms, but our peace, it's, it's not just for the future. The second point is when we live in the reality of eternal life, we live mindful of our present hope. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, again, if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But you know what? There's a similar pity for people that have given up hope in this life, and they, they only hope for what's to come. They've given up hope that anything can come good of this life on earth, and they just, they're just they waiting for heaven. We preach it so many times here, Psalm 27, 13, where David says, I would have lost hope if I didn't think I'd see the goodness of God in the land of the living. David's saying, if we only have hope for the next life, and we don't expect goodness in this life, we too are to be pitied. Because God wants to bless us here and now. You know, the author of Hebrews, he describes our hope like an anchor. But it's an anchor cast far into the future. Think of it this way. Jesus has cast the anchor into the future, and he wants to pull your hope into the present. He wants to, his hope should invade our present reality. Again, in the story of Lazarus, Martha says, okay, he'll rise when everyone else rises on the last day. Her hope was in the deep and distant future. But Jesus says, hey, Lazarus will be raised now. He's dead, you're alive, but I'm what he needs and I'm what you need. It says right here in the scripture, anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. That's for Lazarus. But then he also says, everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. That's for Martha. You know, some of us may have the perspective of of Martha. I'm here, I'm worshiping, because I hope one day, right, that there's eternity and I get to cash in on it one day down the road. Some of us may be here like, I'm here and I'm worshiping because I don't want to cash in on hell for eternity. I want this insurance policy to, to keep me out of hell. But eternal life should affect right now. God wants to invade our present reality. And I would say if he hasn't, then you've got an eternal problem. Because again, God wants his eternal life to affect your today. And if it hasn't affected how you're living today, you probably do have an eternal problem. Because he added eternal life into the equation, not just for the future. He added eternal life into the equation today. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the life. I'm standing right in front of you. I'm available to you. We step into eternal life when we step into relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 17, 3, he says that this is the way to have eternal life. To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. But again, Martha and Mary, they've been through agony. Lazarus has been through agony and death. Yet Jesus, and he revealed his glory to them in a way that I would die for, to see Jesus' power the way they saw Jesus's power. You know, we can't measure the love of God that he has for us based on circumstance, based on health and wealth. You realize if that's the case, then he hated most of the early church. But if you demand that God shows you love the way that you want the world to show you love, you might miss his love altogether. Measure God's love for you by how much he reveals himself to you, works in and through you, regardless of circumstance. Your circumstances in life will have many ups and downs, but God through all of it is steady, never changes. Don't project your circumstances onto God. When you live in light or in the reality of eternal life, you realize this present hope that we have. But thirdly, when we live in the reality of eternal life, we live mindful of our future glory. It says in Romans 8:18 8, in the New Living Translation. It says, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that he will reveal to us later. You know, Jesus brought Lazarus back from the grave. But what about other sisters, brothers, mothers that were mourning people they'd lost? What about the miracles that seem to be missing throughout history? What about the miracles that seem to be missing today? And many see miracles, these stranger things we see through the gospel, these glimpses of the supernatural. They see it as magical, but I've come to see it as signs and foreshadowing. Because you look at the miracles of Jesus, they didn't provide any permanent solution to pain on this planet. Again, this past month, this past couple weeks, it's been a reminder of that reality. But God is no more satisfied with this world than we are. And miracles give a glimpse of what was meant to be and one day will be. Death, decay, destruction. They're interruptions to God's will, once present in Eden and reestablished in eternity. And miracles are glimpses of its restoration. You know, the supernatural and sometimes downright strange events of Christmas and Easter and everything in between, they're heralds of God's rescue plan for our broken planet. Perhaps Jesus, the revolutionary, the one that would seem so dangerously strange that he was killed, maybe that says less about him and more about us in our world. The German theologian, Jürgen Moltmann, he once said that Jesus' healings, he goes as far as to say Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Can I do a fourth point? Y'all cool with that? Can I preach it? Thank you. Thank you. Last one, we've spent weeks on this in Suffolk, especially in our culture today. When we live in reality of eternal life, we live with a code of honor. You know, again, this is a a, a whole sermon series for another time, but it's a special bonus for you guys because I love you. One of the biggest tragedies of our modern time is we've lost the, the sanctity of life. Constant death, injustice, in the news and it, it, you get numb to it because it is constant the loss of life injustice millions aborted and it's not just about death either or maybe it is because you know the bible says that our words have the power of life and death you know jesus says we'll give an account for our every word i've had people say to me before you don't post enough on social media i'm like man that appointment i have with jesus where i have to be accountable for every word i want that to be a short one and relatively painless you know the stuff you say on social media that counts towards that might be a newsflash to some of y'all we think on social media we can say anything we want about anybody with no repercussions. You see public shaming in our culture today where you just pile onto people, trash them for 24 hours or longer. People hurt people with zero accountability and zero honor. We demonize, we diminish, and basically destroy people and find enjoyment in being part of the mob. Like the Pharisees pointing at the finger that, at people that could never quite get it together. But the Pharisee that pray, man, at least I'm not like those people. You know, the church even today still joins that mob. But at the same time, we would say we want more honor. We can see the value of honor, but we have to realize the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. One of the worst cycles to get stuck in is the cycle of dishonor. You know, if, if honor was earned by our behavior, we'd be in an eternal, unbreakable cycle of dishonor. And as Christians, we're called to break the cycle. And we'll break that cycle when we realize that honor is what you decide, not what they deserve. You know, Jesus set the bar of honor pretty high when he decided to honor us sinners through his death. Couldn't have set it any higher. But where does our society get honor? Why am I sliding this into a sermon on death? Because when does our culture decide to honor? It's when people die. No matter how repulsive or ratchet somebody lived, we'll find ways to honor them at their funeral, find ways to honor them at their death. We wax poetic. We find them a place of honor to put them in. You know, even in our culture, where so many believe that we're, we're a result of, of chance, of happenstance. And there's no value in that. Even after 9-11, thousands of people died. Every single one of them got an obituary in the New York Times. Because they realized every one of these lives had value and it had, deserved honor. And you see celebrities. Tabloids will trash them for decades. And then they finally die. And we, again, wax poetic about them. You look at Gladiator. All right, it's been a long time. This came out when I was in high school. If you don't know, end of the movie, he dies, okay? He'd lived as a gladiator. Sorry, you had a long time to watch that. If you haven't by now, you can borrow it. I've got it in my bag. But he <laughs> he had lived as a gladiator, right? All these gladiators dying for entertainment, completely dishonored. And by the end of it, the, the empress, whatever you want to call it, she comes out and she says, hey, honor him. You know, we so often wait to tell people why they're worthy of honor until it's too late. They became worthy of honor the moment Jesus died for them. That person you struggle to honor and respect, Jesus died for that person, right? Don't wait, Write Living eulogies. Celebrate people while they still live and breathe. Remind them that Jesus died for them and gave them worth. You know, you might try to sell stuff on Craigslist, right? You might try to sell stuff on eBay. You could put a price on it, but it's worth what somebody will give for it, right? You could put any price on it, but it's only worth what somebody's gonna pay for it. Jesus paid his life. Again, for every person you pass, every person you struggle to honor, he died for them. And in a society that seems to lose the reality of the sanctity of life more and more with every day, we remind them by the way we honor and love one another as Christ loved us. But if the worship team could come up, one last quote from Gladiator, because it's my favorite movie of all time. It's in Cam's big, big three, top three, but my favorite. i probably watched it more than you. What <laughs> Maximus says at the end of the movie, death smiles on us all, and all that man can do is smile back. You know, we smile, especially as believers, because of hope, because we know what waits for us. And maybe you're saying, it's from a Hollywood movie, man, that's corny. Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived a legendary life, resisting the Nazis before ultimately being executed by the Gestapo. He said this, that death is the supreme festival on the road to freedom. Death is the supreme festival on the road to freedom. You know, I met a a waitress a couple weeks ago. I was eating with Pastor Fred for lunch. She was in Phoebus, right? So she had just moved from Texas, and she had moved from the Dallas area to Virginia Beach about a month ago. She got this job at Mango, 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 Mangou. I don't know how to say the second French word, whatever it is. Chris, you know. <laughs> but she started working there. So for about a week and a half, two weeks, she had been driving from Virginia Beach, down the road we love to call 64, right through the Handon Road Bridge Tunnel, to work every day. And so we were talking about her commute, and she was a, a bright, brilliant girl, but she didn't realize... That the tunnel went underwater. Just the light bulb moment, the, the, the moment of realization was hilarious on her face. Like, are you serious? It blew her mind. She didn't realize that she's driving through the tunnel. There's a, another element, water on the other side of those walls that she wasn't even aware of. You know, tomorrow though, as she's getting ready to go through the tunnel again, she's not going to slam on her brakes. And anybody who drives through those tunnels like I do every day It's probably somewhere in your top five pet peeves, right? People that come up to the tunnel, they're not native to the area, they don't know what's about to happen. They're like, wait, I'm going underwater and they slam their brakes on. She knows she's going underwater, but she's not gonna slam on her brakes because she's already been through that tunnel. She already knows that there's light on the other side, that it's gonna come back up again. There's life on the other side. She's gonna be able to drive confidently through that tunnel because she knows there's life on the other side. May we have the same confidence with death and the life after death. Again, like Christ's victory, it didn't remove death from the equation, but it added eternal life to the equation, not just for our tomorrows, not just for after our death, but for today. It should affect how we live today. You know, but if we're honest, we've all been Lazarus, dead to sin, dead in sin. And Some of us, we've been awakened to Jesus, but we're still in our grave clothes. we still got the, the head wrap, Some of us have become tomb tenants. We set up shop in the tomb. Can you imagine if Lazarus, Jesus raised him from the grave, right? He gets up, he he arises from the dead and he said, you know what? I like it in here. I'm gonna hang out in this tomb. It's a little too bright out there. I'm I'm gonna hang out in here till my eyes adjust. We'd say, what are you, crazy? But spiritually, we got believers who struggle to follow because they still got some of their grave clothes on. They still got things that God wants us to remove old habits, old ways of thinking. It's why Ephesians 5.14 says, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine in you. You know, may we live mindful of the afterlife, of coming judgment, of our present hope, of our future glory, of a code of honor to live by. But again, Lazarus is important because he reminds us of the grave that we one day will visit ourselves. And he reminds us of the encounter that we'll have with Jesus. Only ours won't be back here on earth it'll be in judgment before we step into heaven. You know, when I live my life, I want to live my life in a way where I can look forward to that encounter with Jesus with joy and with excitement and with eager anticipation where I don't have any shame or guilt because it's been covered by the sun. And as we stand tonight, and we're going to go back into worship. If you're here tonight and you would say, yeah, if, if judgment happened right now, if Jesus came back as we worship him, as we stand and we get ready to worship, if judgment came right now, I, I don't know if I'd be excited. I don't know if I'd be excited to see him because I know there's this issue in my life. There's still this that's hindering me. There's still this that's holding me back. If that's you tonight, you're still struggling in those areas. And I want to encourage you as we worship God, we praise him tonight. Come on, the Thomases are over here. I'm going to be over here. You can just, I love this altar. It's huge. We don't have this in Suffolk. We can fit like six people up here. We can fit all y'all up here. But if you're saying, man, if Jesus came back right now, I don't know if I'd be excited because I'm struggling in this area. Or I need to put this down and leave it here tonight. Guess what? There's grace for that. You can receive it tonight, but let's worship God. Let's worship Jesus who gives us life. Not just for tomorrow's, not just for after death, but today, tonight, right here, and right now. Let's worship.